Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Sammy Chittam will join us to discuss the tragedy of Flight 242. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, among many of the air disasters that stick in memory, the tragedy of Flight 242 is perhaps one that has many repercussions of how flights were changed. And in the new book, Southern Storm, The Tragedy of Flight 242, the author, Ms. Sammy Chittam, takes a look at the story of Flight 242. Ms. Chittam is a narrative journalist and Pulitzer Traveling Fellowship recipient who explores the intersection of current events and history. Her work has been published in the New York Times, New York Daily News, the New York Post, and the Village Voice. She's also author of the book, Smithsonian Air Disaster. Disasters, the Flight 981 Disaster Tragedy, Treachery in the Pursuit of Truth. Again, the new book is called Southern Storm, The Tragedy of Flight 242. And Ms. Chittam, we're very pleased to have you today on the Grox Science Show. Oh, it's great to be here. Looking forward to uh, talking with you about this very important subject. Well, it, it certainly is a, a fascinating story. I think one that uh, listeners of a certain age will probably remember uh, vividly. But I, I'm curious, how did you become interested in this story? Well, as a journalist, my background spanning almost four decades has included a lot of crime reporting, which also includes accidents, investigations, and my PhD is focuses on historical narratives and uh, literature. So, to me, this story was very important from both um, you know a historical point of view. And it certainly fascinated me as a former crime reporter who's looked at a lot of investigations. Uh, The forensics of the accident are complicated and and interesting and, and still meaningful. When you look at this story, is it different from disasters that came before or after it? Oh, absolutely. Something like this had not happened in 20th century. This was 1977. This was unprecedented. Both engines on this uh, DC-9 were uh, quit working at 14,000 feet. Never, these pilots had not been trained in how to fly a 44-ton glider. This was not, this, this was not considered possible, this sort of just disastrous failure of both engines. They had to improvise. And it was an incredible and heroic struggle, and one that, that they, almost, they almost pulled it off. They almost executed a, a perfect, well, they did execute a perfect landing, but there were so many factors beyond their control. Um, the plane did break up and crash and, and burst into flames, but it was really a miracle that, that anyone on, on the plane survived, and it, it was only because of the, the, really the heroism and the skills of the pilots that the plane was not, uh, that everyone did die. And it was, this had never happened before. So they, they made history in a, in, a, in a grim way. It set a precedent, and it, it was completely unique at that time in terms of 20th century aviation and uh, 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 jet engines and commercial airplanes. This had not happened before. 
Well, I'm curious to set the, the story of what led to the uh, plane uh, finding itself in this situation and the decisions that were made and the, the aftermath of the crash. Absolutely. I mean, this was um, a regional carrier that does no longer exist. It was known as Southern Airways. And the pilots and the two uh, flight attendants had a heck of a day. It was a Monday, and it was a stormy day in the south. And they, they've been flying back and forth in this what they called milk runs, which is what the um, DC-9 was built for, these really short, fast 30-minute and 20-minute hops. So they were going up and down a lot between you know, New Orleans and Atlanta and then Huntsville and Muscle Shoals, and they were working their way back. They had left Muscle Shoals. They were in Huntsville, and they were going to Atlanta, and they were going to end up their day at New Orleans. Well, they, they never made it to New Orleans. They never made it to Atlanta. They flew out of Huntsville with 81 people on board. And what happened was there was a massive, just monster storm system moving through that region. And when they flew out of Huntsville, they got a weather report, but it was outdated. The, they, and they didn't know they were flying into this monster, monster hailstorm. And they flew right into the heart of it. And the, uh, the combination of the water, which was monsoon-like in its intensity, plus the hail overwhelmed the engines. Um, and I can later tell you more exactly why both engines just completely stopped the functions. But when they got to 17, excuse me, 14,000 feet in this rural area uh, north of Atlanta, both their engines cut out. And... They really, but the two pilots didn't know if they could restart the engines. They tried in vain to restart the engines. They were unable to do so, and they were then flying a 44-ton glider. And they, 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 the pilot, um, Lyman Kill Jr., piloted and glided that plane for 32.5 miles before he had to make an emergency landing. Um, and it was a really harrowing harrowing uh, episode. The pilots never lost uh, their cool, uh, but they were really uh, faced with one failure after another as they, they tried to get the plane on the ground. And when it hit, as a final footnote, it's not a small thing, basically they couldn't make it to any airport. They had to put down on a rural road. And they did so in the community of New Hope, Georgia, it's a tiny little place often referred to as a wide place in the road. And they, their plane's coming down, you know, not long after all the kids are getting out from school, and they, they come screaming, well, gliding down. Screaming's not the right word. They didn't have any engines, and they just making a loud hum that everybody could hear. And they, the pilot, who was a former, was a Vietnam veteran, made a perfect landing because he knew how to land, put a plane down on an aircraft carrier. But it didn't save them, and it didn't save the people in the town who were killed, the nine people on the ground, because the wings of the plane were too wide. They got clipped by trees and utility poles. It broke up and crashed, and on the way, it killed an entire family, uh, three, three mothers and four children sitting at a gas station, an elderly man who was coming out of the store at the gas station, and an elderly um, woman, another resident of New Hope, who, who was killed standing in front of her house before the plane broke up and burst into a ball of fire um, in front in someone in the in the front yard of a woman named Sadie Burkhalter, who became one of the many heroic figures in this who who came to the rescue of the passengers who were still alive, many of whom were on fire as they fled the 
fled the crash. It, it's quite a dramatic um, and disturbing story, but also one of, of great heroism on the part of everyone involved, especially the flight attendants and the pilots. You met with some of the survivors, the the people who remembered. What was your impression of them? What how did they call it? And well, getting to know the survivors was 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 really almost a life changing event for me personally, because the story of the crash, as dramatic as it is, was also followed up by the equally dramatic story of how this little tiny community in Georgia uh, dealt with this. And I talked to Richard Carter. They call him Jabo Carter. He all the people in the town, you know lived there all their lives. He lost his wife, his infant son, and he was, uh, he, like the other, other people in New Hope who, who lost family members, really, first they, they came to the rescue. All the first responders, the people in the town came to the rescue and did everything in their power to, to help the survivors in a really catastrophic, terrifying situation that was that just came out of nowhere, you know. They're just running their errands at the end of the day, and this DC-9 crash lands in their town. So the first, the response by the townspeople was astonishing in terms of what they did to help everyone, uh, to, to, to bring the medical aid, consolation, help them try to, survivors connect with their relatives to deal with the bodies and taking them to makeshift morgues, transporting them, survivors to the burn units. And then in the years afterwards, the decades afterwards, the town created a very unique uh, and ongoing memorial um, and survivor, memorial tributes and survivors group to help the survivors of the crash and their family members cope with this and also help the town recover from what was really a, a, a catastrophic incident. It was the biggest disaster in the, in the state of Georgia, and it happened this tiny little town. So it was a story of heroism, heartbreak, but also healing thanks to the uh, resilience of the people of New Hope and the survivors. Um, uh, that's the long answer. The short answer is I was really moved by their story, their, their stories, their resiliency, and their, their commitment to get through this and extract something meaningful and important from what was just a terrible tragedy for so many people. What happened then in the investigation following the crash? <laughs> well, they wanted to know why those two engines just completely knocked out. They shouldn't have done that. And, and they wanted to know why, why the pilots flew into a storm. They didn't get the weather reports from Southern Airways because a lot of their equipment was down that day. They wanted to know what the pilots did during a mysterious two-minute blackout when they were completely on their own. Uh, we had no, there was no CVR uh, record, and they were able to get partial. They were able to get some answers. They, well, they were able to find out why the engines failed, and but they weren't really able to ultimately understand everything that happened during that two-minute blackout. Uh, when the pilots came within miles of an airport, one airport they could have landed at. And they also wanted to know what happened with the, uh, with the controllers because these guys were in a gap with the, uh, with, with the air traffic controllers. Was, there was just a cascade of, of events in which the pilots were really just on their own up there in that plane with no, with no engines. But and the short answer is they found out why the engines failed. What happened was is that the engines were built to withstand huge amounts of water. Even in 1977, there was justified confidence in these, in these 
turbofan engines. It wasn't. That's what. Not, that's not what did the engines is. What happened is the bleed cavities of, for the engines were blocked by ice, and they, the, the, they, the, the water built up in the engines, and it led to uncontrolled what they call surging and destruction of the engines. There was no recovering. It wasn't a stall. It was absolute destruction of the engines. There was no coming back. And they were able later to build engines now. You don't have to worry about that. Um, those were the old, what they call, low-bypass engines. Now they have the high-bypass engines where the, the, ice, the, ice, the ice can't bring, couldn't bring a plane down now, you know, in 2018 the way it did in 1977. Were there changes in policy for how flights like this were handled or recoveries from flights like this were handled? Well, the first thing that happened was um, is that, we again, you have to time travel back to 1977. This case was often used uh, by pilots as study to understand how to avoid this happening again. I interviewed one of the pilots who taught a class and used this particular, used this particular crash. At the time, they had to learn immediately afterwards what to do and not do, uh, which they hadn't addressed before in cases of, of total engine failure or the surging pr the procedure up to total engine failure. And they also told the pilots how to deal with this, ter this terrible onboard radar they had back then, which was predated the digital displays they have now. So it's not even meaningful now. But then they had to learn, they had to teach the pilots, wait a minute, if, uh, this is how you deal with the inadequacies of the onboard radar, right? This is how you will respond if your engines start surging. So they were able to teach the pilots how to deal with what had previously been unanticipated problems. But in fact, those lessons became soon became irrelevant because this old uh, this old ray onboard radar was quickly replaced by by better updated uh, systems and um, the engines were improved so there was a, just a short period of time where there was training in the pilots for how to deal with these mechanical problems but in the long run these problems were dealt with by technological progress made with both onboard radar and also changes in the, uh, the, uh, the, the type of engines being manufactured. Has the industry learned something about how to handle disasters and, of course, the, the recovery from disasters from this particular case? You know, personally, I, I think one of the things that really went wrong was how the air traffic controllers responded to the emergency. It was just awful, actually. It's not that they, 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 there was a gap there in, the, in the who was handling this flight. And the air traffic controllers that were coming into Atlanta, he just seemed... He was handling uh, almost more. He, I forget how many other calls he made. Well, he was instead of being focusing on this one plane that didn't have any engine and had an emergency and had only you know minutes to try to recover from this situation. Less than that, he kept handling all these other calls. He didn't. He didn't dead it. He didn't hand his other uh, flights over to a supervisor. And they were treated almost as if they were a routine flight coming in. They really weren't given emergency status. So the uh, air traffic control system had to learn from this experience about 
how do you deal with an emergency? If you're at Atlanta and you've got an overwhelmed air traffic controller who's dealing with multiple incoming flights, and one of those flights is about to crash land in you know less than two minutes, maybe you should only be talking to that one pilot, not eight pilots. And that was a terrible, terrible mistake that was made. I can't, I, and I, I, I do think that there are better procedures in place in terms of training for the air traffic controllers and how to handle this kind of emergency. Fascinating story. I'm curious, we're running slightly out of time. If you have just some final words regarding the, the tragedy of Flight 242. If you read the book, I think everyone's going to be as- astonished at how this one tiny little town dealt with this emergency from the moment the plane landed and burst into flames till now, you know, four decades later, they have continued to create this community of survivors in the town and also from the plane and to really provide an example for anyone who wants to know how to deal with trauma and recovery uh, that can uh, really, it's, it's, it's a truly inspiring story, and I think a lot can be learned on a very human level, more so than on a technical level here. The new book, Southern Storm, The Tragedy of Flight 242, the author, Sam Chittam. And uh, Ms. Chittam, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Oh, terrific show. Thank you so much, and appreciate the chance to talk about this amazing episode uh, from aviation history that not too many people know about and everybody should really know about. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.